1: This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to The Russell Moore Show brought to you by Christianity Today. Every week, we explore here conversations and questions from a Christian perspective to help you sort out how to live as a follower of Jesus in confusing times. This week, we have a conversation to seek to do just that. We're here today with Andy Crouch, who is with Praxis, a, uh, an organization dealing with uh, uh, redemptive entrepreneurship, uh, all kinds of interesting things happening at Praxis. Many of you uh, are familiar with Andy Crouch's work in several of his books that have been really, really, uh, I almost said, impactful and, and we'll talk about later why that's bad. Watch out, Russell. And I, I don't even know why I did that because I never used that word ordinarily. But we're going to be talking about his new book, The Life We're Looking For, Reclaiming Relationship in a Technological World. And one of the reasons I'm really interested in having this conversation is when you all send me questions uh, in uh, every week, I'm surprised how many of them have to do with this question, with, uh, with how to be human in a technological world, uh, whether it's a teenager, college student, parents, uh, or, or others who are dealing with this. It, it used to be that most of those questions were about porn, and, and that's a, a, a certainly a, a worthy uh, subject, but a lot more of them now having to do with just the general sense of feeling overwhelmed, in you know, a technological age. And so that's why this book is really, uh, really important for right now. And I think you're going to benefit from this conversation. Andy, thanks so much for being with us today. It is a pleasure. Thank you, Russell. I'm wondering if maybe this is just me. But I find that when I write, it's usually because of something that I'm grappling with and I'm I'm mm. thinking about. Uh, so, uh, writing a book on adoption, it was largely because I was trying to work through why I was so reluctant initially mm. to adopt, yeah. and. I wonder if I wonder if that's true for you. If if there was a, a time in your life in which you started to realize, wait a minute, this technology and the technological age, it's starting to change me <laughs> or, or or change someone that I love. Like. Did you ever have a, a moment like that?
2: Well, it's interesting that you ask because I think there's actually two components to it. One one is that technology. I don't know if it was my first love. I think music was my first love. I got that from my mother, who was a a classical pianist, and I learned music very early on. But I got tech from my dad, who brought home a computer modem um, or a computer terminal. Uh, This will make no sense to anyone under the age of... (laughs) 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 60. But uh, back in the day, you connected to uh, the mainframe computers of places like the university where my dad taught over the phone lines. And he brought this home when I was like 10 years old. And I learned to code very early on. I mean, really, really early on. I was using punch cards uh, at the very beginning as a 10, 11, 12 year old and just became absolutely uh, kind of intoxicated with with coding, with programming, with what was becoming possible. And so the first level is that this has been a big part of my life, even though it's not ended up being my like life's work. Um, it's just a fascination that I've had since I was young. And if you had asked me when I was 11 or 12 years old, what are you going to do when you grow up? I would have said, I'm going to be a programmer, um, mm. even though that turned out not at all to be the case. I would say the second thing that happened, uh, in my case, was uh, marriage. (laughs) Uh, Interestingly, to an experimental physicist, Catherine uh, uses all kinds of high tech at work. But what I started to realize in the early years of our marriage, and even more dramatically once we had children, was that my relationship with the technology that I surrounded myself with was disordered. And this was before the Mm. iPhone. This was before, uh, I mean, it was very early days of the internet. But I just had... Uh, a, uh, there was a lure uh, to these devices in my own life that interfered with the most important relationships in my life. Mm. So my wife gently, lovingly, patiently, and mostly patiently, sometimes impatiently (laughs) confronted me with that. Mm. So in a way I have been I have been wrestling with this uh, just at a personal level, kind of, it's my whole life story is, is bound up in these, these technological developments that are now part, part of all of our, our lives in many ways.
1: You know, it seems that that people have different kinds of problems when it comes to relating to technology. Mm. Uh, in your case, were you more of the, I'm finding my attention span splintered apart by this or was it more i'm i'm kind of drawn into controversies that i don't want to be a, a part of or was it more I'm starting to care more about what these people think of me than the people that I love or or maybe it was right. it was something of all of it.
2: I think well, all of those have happened. I've sensed all those things happening to me and have had to deal with them. Um, but I actually think first it was it was a slightly different thing. Um, and this maybe isn't normal, although maybe it's more normal than we realize it it actually didn't have to do with the the social worlds that open up through media and technology initially it really was this experience that i talk about in this book as the experience of superpowers the the mm-hmm. the ability to get a computer to do things in certain ways really fast really effectively Um, with a kind of minimum of effort, or at least a certain kind of effort, is very minimal. And that sense of exhilaration when the thing actually works and the program runs and it does the thing you asked it to do, and it it obeys you in a way and Mm -hmm. serves you in a way that other people don't. (laughs) Other Mm -hmm. people are much more complicated to get them to do what you want them to do, including Mm -hmm. spouses and children. And so for me the first layer of distortion was I just had to confront how how much I liked that sense of being in control when I was at mm. the at the computer keyboard um and and then later came realizing oh wow now that this can present to me a whole world of of people or the simulations of people or the avatars of people who I can form a kind of imaginary relationship to, Mm -hmm. uh, that became another level of uh, conflict and competition for the actual people God had put in my life and the actual work God had put before me with real people.
1: My kids asked me one time, we were talking about, I grew up in a place uh, in which hurricanes would come through. Uh, periodically, and I was talking about the process of being without power and so forth after hurricanes. And one of my kids said, "How long would it be before the Wi-Fi would come back up?" <laughs> and I had to say, "This was the 1980s. There was nobody had Wi-Fi." It's, it's uh, but you know, I think Decades. there was. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I think there was a time when people assumed the problems would be for digital natives. Uh, for people who grew up with this uh, technology, and that does bring its own its own problems, but yeah. uh, it's it is as much or more so uh, an issue for people who didn't grow up with all of these devices and are kind of um, kind of overwhelmed by this kind of world. Have you seen that?
2: Yes, for sure. I. I think in some ways, especially this uh, emerging cohort of young adults, let's say my children are 25 and 22, I'd put them in this category. Uh, in, in some ways they grew up with the, the ambiguity of, of many of these things. The social media uh, was already there when they were going into middle school and high school. And they actually maybe developed better immune systems or a better sense, a better kind of threat response. Like this isn't mm-hmm. all good. I actually think for some people who uh, who uh, kind of got on Facebook, let's say in midlife, without any <laughs> immunity,
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: with, and without kind of seeing the risks of it, um, it, it, it can be actually more uh, in all-encompassing, addictive, habit forming, dependency creating. Um, because partly, you know, everyone talks about how much younger people use screens. Um, But the truth is, uh, older people are using screens a lot. And when we did some research for my daughter's book, uh, My TechWise Life, which was her own perspective on on these matters as a a late teenager, um, the number one thing teenagers said when we asked them, what do you wish you could change in your relationship with your parents? They said, I wish my parents would spend less time on their screens and more time Uh, talking to me. That's what the kids want. Yeah. (laughs) So I do think... Those who kind of adopt it in the middle, the so-called digital immigrants, though I don't actually believe there's exactly such a thing as digital natives, um, but but those who arrive at it without developing the immune system uh, actually can become very dependent on it uh, mm. as well.
1: I find the title uh, of your book actually really subversively revealing uh, in its own way, because it's the life you're look, that we're looking for. Yeah. And that with some things, it seems what we have to do is to convince people, this is the life you should want. Yes. Uh, the, the way that you're going, it, it seems to be working, but it's really not long-term. In this case, it seems that there are very few people who would say, I'm really happy with the way that my relationships uh, take place in, right. in this kind of an era. People are exhausted or run down. Right. They just don't know how to they don't know how to do anything else. They don't know how to get out of it.
2: I think this is one of the most interesting and actually in a strange way, hopeful aspects of our current moment is there, mm. the dissatisfaction is universal. There's a pretty universal sense. this is not working. Um, and it extends all the way to people who are actually building this stuff. You know, the, the engineer who invented the Facebook like button and uh, wrote the blog post that introduced that thumbs up, <laughs> if you mm-hmm. remember that, she yeah. has eliminated the Facebook newsfeed from her computer. Like she's, she's created a plug-in to get rid of the whole thing. And so the very people who de- even who developed it, uh, uh, Tony Fidel, who invented the, the iPod and was very involved in the, the development of the iPhone at Apple, told uh, Fast Company, I think it was, he said, I wake up in cold sweats at night uh, asking what did we bring into the world? And he was specifically mm. referring to his own teenage kids who were growing up in this world that his device, in a way, had created. So there's kind of a universal quest, I think, right now to figure out how do we live a truly human life um, in this world of devices. And I actually find that uh, an incredibly fruitful moment uh, rather than, it, than most people being like, oh, it's fine, what are you complaining about? There's hardly anyone who feels that way.
1: I found really moving uh, in the book your discussion of um, of mirroring uh, of what it is yeah. for a mm. child to really need to be seen and to have someone looking back at uh, him or her, and mm. it kept coming to mind. I was I was teaching this past weekend on Hagar uh, mm. in the Book of Genesis, yes. Yes. and you are the God who sees. Uh, right. Someone who was invisible uh, in right. in many categories, but she was seen uh, in that way. And then the way that Jesus is uh, seeing Nathaniel, uh, uh, where you're under uh, the fig tree and the wow. woman at the well to- tells me everything that I've, I've done. And she's really seen and acknowledged. And it, it was really moving to me to think about that primal sort of quest to be mm. seen and to be acknowledged. And... It, it really I think there's something disrupted there that goes beyond what we even acknowledge I mean mm. do, do do you mm. what what prompted you to start really thinking about that primal longing for being seen?
2: well, I think it actually was um, In this context, I started thinking about it when I heard, when I talked with parents about how their children felt about the parents' technology use, kind of related to Mm. what I mentioned a moment ago. I remember a a woman who was a very accomplished and professional, admirable person in in every way, um, clearly a dedicated mother, but she described this kind of wrenching moment when her maybe two or three-year-old, maybe uh, early early, uh, childhood child, uh, the the mom was uh, sitting on the uh, on the couch uh, working on her laptop, trying to get some email done, as as professionals now have to do round the clock. You know, uh, we work from home, we work from everywhere, and her daughter um, interposed her face between her mom's face and the computer uh, the computer keyboard, and said, "Mom, look at me," <laughs> with this kind of desperate tone. And it was this wake-up call for for this mom who of course loves her daughter and of course wants to look at her and, and delight in her, but that that somehow her attention was being diverted. And I think you are right that that this has been disrupted. This, uh, you know, this we are made for one another's gaze. Uh, we have more neurons dedicated to recognizing faces than anything else. Uh, just we're we're built that way from the moment we arrive in the world, and 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 we have this thing that you mentioned, these mirror neurons that actually don't just recognize another face, but actually mirror in our own um, you know neurological system. Uh, what we imagine and can tell the other person is experiencing and doing uh, down to motor neurons. If, if I lift my arm, there's a set of neurons in your body that actually act as if you are lifting your arm, that mirror mm. what I'm doing. It's quite amazing, right? Yeah. But above all, the ability to attend to the, the dozens and dozens of muscle groups in the human face that communicate emotion, that communicate attention, that communicate presence. And this has always been the most compelling thing for human beings. But I I mean, let's ask ourselves honestly, if you and I were together in person um, and you were sitting across from me, we're doing this interview remotely. But if you were sitting across from me in real life and there was a TV right next to you hmm. uh, showing be it whatever, it could be the World Cup, it could be a soap opera, it could be a, a stupid ad I've seen 10 times you know my attention would be diverted to that screen. There is something about these glowing rectangles um, of all kinds, the entertainment kinds, but maybe even more so the laptop that allows me to project myself with power and efficacy into the world. That grabs my attention in a way that displaces my ability to actually pay attention to a face. Mm. And when you think about how much time all of us are spending immersed in these kind of very very shallow mirrors of ourselves, um, through personal computing, we are missing out on that face-to-face relationship that up until the blink of an eye ago in human history was the, the most compelling reality any human being ever encountered was another person who looked at them, regarded them, interacted with them. And now we're all competing and having to force ourselves, like I'm out to dinner with my wife and I have to force myself to pay attention to this face and this person rather than the screen that's just over her shoulder.
1: Well, and there, there are a lot of conversations going on right now necessarily about narcissism uh, because of mm. things that are happening in the church, things that are happening in yeah. the political arena and yeah. other places. And I think there are a lot of people who assume narcissism comes from too much uh recognition parents are uh, they're, they're helicoptering or they're uh they' they're giving participation trophies and and children have too much uh, self-esteem when in reality it's the reverse it's, it's the lack it's, that, it's the lack
2: that bottomless well of has anyone really seen me in a long time known me was I ever seen and known oh man hmm.
1: yeah I I agree well when when you're thinking about uh, these issues of navigating, uh, living in this kind of technological world, uh, you talk about in the book, uh, superpowers. And the, the first thing that came to my mind was a segment on This American Life from uh, several years ago uh, about this experiment of asking people, would you rather have the power of flight or the power of invisibility?
2: Yes. And yes. how revealing that uh, question was. One of the was. most haunting episodes of this American yes. life
1: ever produced. <laughs> it really, it really, it really was. And I, I really, for our listeners, I, I encourage you to listen to it because one of the things that they found was that most people would say flight initially. Yeah. And then they would move to invisibility. And the longer that one talked, the more the invisibility was to do. Fallen things, yeah, and to have it really expose the shadow side. Yes, but I yeah, thought about incredible. that when you're talking about superpowers and mm. the sense that mm. we are looking for, and maybe have the illusion of superpowers. What, what? What? Explain to our listeners what that looks like.
2: Yeah, it's so interesting you bring up that that episode because when I think about superpowers, I think about essentially effortless efficacy, effortless power. That is, it's mm. the combination of being able to get something done on the one hand but to get it done with very little effort, cost, or apparent uh, expense to oneself. It's pushing a button and having something happen that you want to have happen, or to summon something, whether it's information or entertainment or, you know, another person, the simulation of another person's presence, and you just press a button and it happens. Um, and and I would call all of that um, kind of the technological promise uh, that that lures us. Really, we, we adopt technology either because it's going to make our lives just effortless without effect, like I just don't even have to worry about doing the dishes anymore because I installed a dishwasher, or because it will give us actually the ability to engage in a way in the world, but with very little investment or risk of ourselves. Mm. And this is where I think this question about, you know, when it, if it, it came down to it, would you choose flight or invisibility? It was so revealing in that episode because invisibility is about control and about minimizing risk. It's about being able to decide how and whether I'm seen, which is if that's like our deepest need, right? Then invisibility, the ability to prevent you from seeing me when I don't want to be seen, it would seem like in a way the ultimate remedy for shame and the Mm. ultimate like, license in a way for sin, right? Yeah. Um, Whereas flight would be um, this experience, uh, and I think they even talked about in that episode because I remember it quite vividly, um, flight would be this sort of exposure to the world like you uh, even if you just like Superman just could decide to go, which is a kind of superpower. you still are sort of you're out going to be out in the wind and the wild and yeah. through the air moving through the world. But I actually think what technology gives us is kind of both. That is, I get on the airplane um and it transports me kind of magically. I fly from one place to another but with very little, effort or development of myself, I kind of retreat into my little tiny seat (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, with my, you know, my headphones and my reading material. It's amazing how little people talk to each other on airplanes now that you and I maybe remember a few decades ago, that wasn't so true. You'd have conversations with people, but now we've got all these layers of technology that I plug in my headphones and I'm now in my own kind of cocoon of a world. I'm not literally invisible but I'm exercising a great deal of power, but with very, very little risk. Mm. And this also means that I exercise that power without becoming someone. I, there's no becoming involved in the exercise of superpowers. Uh, you just wish for it to be, or you you press the button to make it so. Um, and I think that's the distinctive um, promise of technology, but also the, the very real peril. Because um, I don't actually think we're made primarily to live that way. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, with effortless power. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu slash admit.
1: Do you think that COVID uh, made this worse? Well, was this just a, a kind of a bump in the road and, and things returned back to the status quo? Or did the, did the pandemic really change things long-term?
2: Going into it, my prior belief is that pandemics generally don't introduce drastically new things, but they do accelerate trends that already were happening. And I would say overall, I do think that's what happened with COVID, um, that uh, it's actually interesting. There are a number of indices of well-being um, of, of many, many kinds. How many close friends do people say they have? How much time do people spend out of doors? How ma- like all these different questions that uh, can be sliced and diced in different ways. And all of them, uh, and uh, I mean, maybe the most dramatic or adolescent mental health kind of uh, statistics, yeah. All of them start diverging from the historical pattern in the middle of the 20-teens, uh, 2015, 2016. We start to see these these curves change slope, basically. The second derivative kind of starts to change. Um, and that was before COVID. But it's also the case that the slope changes and gets even steeper uh, in 2020-21. I, and I think the the really paradoxical thing is that we all got a taste of a completely virtualized life for a while. Yeah. Most people in most parts of the world um, in the various kinds of lockdown that we experienced. And you would think, I mean, it clearly did produce a kind of aversion. Like we now talk about Zoom fatigue and we yeah. all know what that is. But I think it also produced a kind of paralysis and dependence, what I'm experiencing as, as I get back out into the world with people and with educators, with schools, with churches, is everybody knows it wasn't good, but it's like we we were sapped of the will to to go back out and seek the good together again. And, and that that sense of futility and dependence is just overwhelming. And I run into this all the time talking to parents about their kids' device use and, you know, families that had managed to have relatively healthy patterns. Suddenly schools, you know, like families that didn't have devices in bedrooms, which is one of our family's number one principles. Well, suddenly the school is like your kid needs to have a quiet place to join class. And so now you got devices in the bedrooms. Yeah. And everybody saw this was not good. I mean, hardly anyone Kids, adults, anybody thinks that was good. But what I also hear is that ship has sailed. We can't we can't get the devices back out of the bedrooms now. They were in school for a year and a half that way. It's just over. And there's this sense of futility and resignation, I think, that is really a little surprising to me. I, I thought it would create more of an of, aversive reaction where we'd say never again. But in fact, yeah. it seems to be like, well, this is just the way it is now, which I do not believe is true and doesn't have to be true.
1: Well, and even even just uh, adult friendships, it, it seems mm. that people kind of lost lost yeah. the muscle memory of, of how to connect with one another in real life.
2: I yes, absolutely, and you know, uh, true for adults, even more true for adolescents. Uh, I I went into the pandemic most concerned about uh, if you had to pick like one social issue, I was concerned about it was it was reading. Loss, literacy loss among mm. eight to ten-year-olds, because there's this window of time when you're eight to ten years old. It seems, according to scholars like Marianne Wolf, who studied this, um, that that if you don't acquire literacy in that window, it's very hard to ever pick it up later. What I and that has happened. That is that is genuinely going to be an issue that we'll live with for a hundred years in a way in the in the West um, because of those couple of years of loss. But what I hadn't thought about was the way that there there may be a similar window in early adolescence, say, 12 to 14, 13 to 15, something like that, where you kind of have that opportunity to figure out how to be a person with other persons, which is so hard and awkward and complicated. And a whole cohort of middle schoolers just missed it. Um, And who knows if they ever fully catch up. Um, but also who knows whether even those of us who just were deprived of it for a while ever take the risks again, because ultimately what technology promises you is a life of reduced risk. But I don't believe that's the life we're actually looking for. I I think the life of love is a life of risk, but are we going to choose it? That's the Mm. the huge question, uh, at, at personal family, community, church, social levels.
1: I had an ouch moment. When I was reading this book, uh, Hmm. because I remembered the time that one of my uh, children, my youngest son, uh, said, has the Amazon run today? Uh, As (laughs) though he's talking about has the mail run or or, or something (laughs) like that. just assuming uh, is it a holiday that there's not an Amazon package? And I, I was thinking about the fact that there are Amazon delivery people who come here a lot. I wouldn't be able to tell you a name uh, no. for any of them. I wouldn't yeah. be able to identify uh, someone's face in a mugshot at all. And you talk about uh, in mm. the book about how uh, mammon um, mm. and particularly kind of the way that we do commerce um, depersonalizes And and can depersonalize. And uh, I thought as I was reading that that's exactly, that's That's exactly exactly. what has happened. Um, Talk to us a little bit about how that happens and why.
2: Yeah, in some ways, I, I started this book in a way with the question, how did we become the most powerful people in history, most affluent by many measures, you know, all kinds of things and the most lonely at the same time. Like, why is this world of so much power such a bad place to be a person? And I, I really was helped by a theologian named Craig Gay, who teaches at Re- Regent College in Vancouver, who has a very good book of his own on technology. And he, he's the one who really got me thinking about this. And his, his orienting question is, <laughs> why is so little technology actually helping us with what he calls ordinary embodied human life? Like just ordinary Mm. life. Why why are we always being promised these amazing superpowers, but never just helped with being like an ordinary human being? And his basic answer is because it's not designed to serve persons. It's designed to serve uh, commerce. I can't remember if he uses the word mammon. But if we take mammon to be, uh, as I think Jesus used the word, uh, the kind of spiritual principle, if not demonic principle behind commerce that turns relationships into transactions and turns things into commodities turns the mm. created world which is a gift from god into a commodity just to be used by human beings mastering the world for themselves um that is what drives technology technology is adopted it's developed and adopted not according to the question of will this help me love the lord my god with all my heart soul mind and strength and love my neighbors myself <laughs> like mm-hmm. that is just not what's in the mind of any Developer, any software engineer, any hardware engineer, what's what's driving it is? Does this produce economic profit for some uh, participant in the value chain of the modern market economy? And that's why Amazon, which when it started uses used uh, UPS uh, for their final mail delivery, and I knew the UPS driver who, who yeah. came because he had a route and he he did the route every day and he knew most of the people on the route. And I, I didn't, I don't know that I learned his name, but we definitely talked. I would, I would absolutely recognize his face. I think I might even recognize it today, like fifteen years later, because I saw him. I was a pretty heavy Amazon user yeah. pretty early on. Um, well, now, uh, in, in an incredible optimization, Amazon now deploys gig gig workers and sometimes full-time employees on completely, to an ordinary human perspective, random routes, which is why you can't recognize anyone because you never see them more than once. Because every day their route is optimized not for what's going to be good for this employee whose work is to make that final mail delivery, which is good, dignif- that can be good human work to connect vendors and customers, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, But what would be a good way to do that? Well, it would be one where you actually know the people you're serving, ideally on both ends of the value creation that is the essence of good work. But what Amazon's optimizing for is not the benefit of that employee. It's actually in some ways not even your benefit as a customer. It's to wring all the efficiency they can out of the system using algorithms that treat people as interchangeable units of labor. and, and it, it ends up with this world where we very rarely encounter another person with enough depth and time and presence to know them, which used to happen in commercial settings all the time. In retail, you would go to the corner store, you would know the people who worked in that store. Yeah. Um, now Amazon will happily let you into their grocery store where there is literally no one there. There's just stuff and you and your invisible money. And as you walk out, your invisible money is liberated from you very efficiently and you've got <laughs> stuff. And But you haven't talked to a person, you haven't interacted with a person, and you multiply that by every sector of our economy. And you realize this is all being designed in ways that absolutely increase economic profit, at least in the short term, but absolutely undercut the experience of being a person in the in the created Gift of a world that we are in.
1: When you were writing in the book about um, about the treating of someone as something, um, mm-hmm. and the way that this shift can happen in one's mind, and I, I think you mentioned uh, you mentioned there this loss of being able, for instance, to read irony. Uh, and, and those sort of, uh, which is, is, I mean, one can just look at the trajectory of Twitter and Facebook conversations and definitely see it. I mean, there's no way that there's all kinds of jokes that someone could have made before that would be sarcastic or ironic, it would never make now because it would oh, just man. be a, a response to it. And I was thinking about, it. I don't even remember who was writing about this, but about an artificial intelligence program that could read Macbeth and Hamlet and and, and any work of literature and then tell you what it's about. So Uh Macbeth is about ridding the conscience of guilt and Hamlet Uh is about ambiguity in the face of death. And you step back, you say, is that really though? Is is the experience of reading Macbeth just about finding the mm. abstraction uh, b- behind it, or yes. is there something a lot more, a lot yes, more yes, yes. human uh, and, and personal right. uh, to it? And and that it seems to me is a, a point that you are are hitting kind of repeatedly here mm. is the lack of the the mm. lack of the personal and that personal connection. And I wonder if you've seen this too in church life, um, Mm. in the sense of even just the way that we read the Bible. You might have one church that reads the Bible uh, as a way to sort of pull out The Practical Applications for Life, and another church that would read it to sort of pull out the worldview axioms or the uh, doctrinal uh, sorts of uh, tenets and depersonalize even the way that we hear from God.
2: Yes, yes, in which the Bible becomes a kind of technological device <laughs> that delivers yeah. whatever commodity we happen to be looking for, whether it's practical life applications or doctrine or um, or whatever. Yeah, I, that is interesting. I think uh, what it's what strikes me, all those misuses and misreadings in a way, have in common, whether of the Bible or or just someone's uh, social media post, is it's a flattening and a loss of context, um, which I would I would connect very closely to mediated, um, mediated modes of expression always shrink bandwidth for the sake of efficient communication. Hmm. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. And that's what writing does, of course. But what a really great reader does, in a way, is they, <laughs> it's like uh, it, <laughs> written texts arrive... Um, Almost like dehydrated, they they have to be refilled with imagination to really understand. You know, to get that mirror neuron thing going. When if you're in the congregation of the the Romans, the first Romans, who re, the congregation that received Paul's letter to the Romans, um, and that letter is carried to you, um, how does that get reanimated so you actually? deepen and reform and reimagine your own life and your relationship with the Apostle Paul, who in this case they haven't even met at the time they get that letter. Well, great reading uh, gives you access in a real way to the mind and heart and soul of another. Um, and of course, we'd believe if it's the Bible, uh, ultimately, the mind, uh, if we can put it this way, the mind, heart, soul of God, the, the reality of God, the communication of God. But it requires a kind of contextual imagination that used to come semi-naturally to people. I won't ever say maybe ever fully naturally because reading's sort of an unnatural thing in some ways. But we used to apprentice ourselves deeply enough to the Bible that its rich kind of imaginative resources were were all available to us when we opened a given page. But mm-hmm. once you stop doing that, it becomes just it's just a device for inspiration or maybe information or maybe ideas. But not for imagination, not for connection and relationship, not for real presence. So I think that's happening. uh, uh, I mean, in some ways, it's most damaging when it it attenuates the way that we read the Bible. But it's actually affecting the way we read everything and engage with everything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. this kind of decontextualized, flattened, bandwidth-shrunk use of the world and of texts um, for very narrow ends, rather than realizing, like, this is the whole problem with the Cliff Notes or Spark Notes approach to literature, right? What's Macbeth about? It's about a whole lot of things. It's not yeah. about one thing. Um, yeah, so I, I think that's right. You know, I was, uh, I don't I mean to go on too long here, I but I was in a setting recently where we were talking about what are the spiritual resources that we need as Christians to, like, survive and thrive in this very difficult world we find ourselves in and one of the most like um uh, insightful things that was said is we need 150 psalms <laughs> uh, you you mm-hmm. you really can't say oh well you just need to learn lament i mean the psalms have lament but lament alone is not going to do it and you can't yeah. say as another kind of person might say oh we just need to learn how to praise you know how to trust god No, you need 150 psalms, many of which have these very unexpected turns in the middle of the psalm where they start acting and and behaving very differently toward God than they did at the beginning, some of which end on real downer notes, others of which end with incredibly exalted notes. And you've somehow got to absorb that prayer book enough into your own heart, mind, and imagination that when you encounter the world, you've got that um, kind of repertoire of possibility available to
1: you. Yes, Yes. But
2: how often do we take the time to acquire the repertoire?
1: You even write, and it, it really struck me because it was something I've never thought about, I don't think, before. Um, Romans, you mentioned uh, the, the, the first Romans who would have received Paul's letter. But the importance of Phoebe uh, and, and the right. importance of those who are not only just delivering the letter, but contextualizing it uh, yes. in, in relationship. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think that's something I had ever thought about until I mean, then.
2: Totally making the neurological connection, right? Because Phoebe's been with Paul; he's, she's there as he's finishing the letter, at least. And she—he's been teaching in her her home and Gaius's home and Corinth, basically. Cyncria. She's going to go. She's going to be with these human beings. There's going to be this kind of mirror neuron exchange between her and them. And so, in a way, they're going to encounter Paul by someone who was neurologically shaped by this interpersonal encounter with him. And, and her presence is not ancillary to the, the letter. It, it, it opens up the letter to them. And what really struck me, um, well, this was a two-stage insight, Russell. So the first was that it's really interesting that Jesus never used media. So he mm. never mediated his communication ever. There's one time when it says he wrote on the ground, but we don't—we don't even know for sure that he's writing words. And in any case, it's not recorded what he wrote. it has gone by the end of the story. Um, and and so, it, it strikes me that that media is something you have to use when you're not uh, yet fully human. <laughs> mm. If you're fully mm. human, just being present in a particular place and time is enough for the the transforming creative, redemptive work of God to, to go forth in all its fullness from a single life lived in an unmediated way. Unmediated with respect to other human beings, but also, of course, with respect to his father with whom he had kind of immediate relationship. Well, so when you point that out, people are like, well, but the, the first Christians wrote letters. And I think the, the reason is they weren't Jesus. They didn't have that entire fullness of life. But then what really struck me is we really have no evidence they ever sent letters without people. They always Mm. sent them with a person. And there were postal facilities, you could say, in the ancient world, they didn't have a postal service, but there were ways to get letters, you know, to a distant city, entrust them to a captain of a boat and pay him a little money and say, my friend will pay you more at the other end. But all the evidence we have is that these letters consistently are carried by a person. And then the really interesting corollary is the other form of mediation in our world is money, which is like the way to mediate the transfer of value. And we think, oh, I'd like to support that cause. I'll, I'll send them a check or I'll make an online donation. And the first Christians never send money without people either. In other mm. words, they don't allow this replacement of personal relationship um, to infiltrate their engagements with each other. They keep it personal, even as they make use of the writing and the money, uh, the collection for Jerusalem, the support of the various missionaries. But it's all done with persons in the loop <laughs> yeah. rather than taking persons out of the loop
0: this episode is brought to you in part by thomas nelson publisher of nine lives and Counting, a bounty hunter's journey to faith hope and redemption written by Dwayne dog the bounty hunter chapman nine lives and counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more.
1: You know, regular listeners to this show know that I'm, I'm kind of hammering all the time uh, how metaphors matter. Uh, and the and the unintentional metaphors like like I just used of hammering uh, now that I, <laughs> Dude, I think can't about help it. Using them. <laughs> yeah it it uh it it reveals something and you talked about uh, in the book uh, even the example of this word impact which <laughs> i see increasingly even in church mission statements oh, or yeah. show you a of Yeah, <laughs> it's everywhere. And you argue that that matters. Why yeah. is that the case?
2: Because it's a very misleading way of thinking about, uh, what does matter long-term and in, in the shaping of culture and the shaping of individual lives. So we think impact to me is, uh, concentrated force over a short amount of time Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, it's Mm -hmm. the hammering uh, accomplishes impact. That is, you use the hammer to concentrate the force and you move it very quickly so that when it hits that nail or whatever you're hammering, uh, hammering home your point um, you, you hope it will kind of go really fast and, and, and uh, really effectively. And I mean, there's clearly there's things in human history that are, that have that kind of quality. They happen very quickly. They're quite, dramatic in certain ways. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus uh, happens like overnight. Uh, <laughs> this world-altering uh, infusion of life where there was death happens very suddenly. The conversion of Paul, you know, he's knocked off his horse. Um, so I'm not saying there's not a time when God seems to act in these very, very dramatic ways. But the really interesting thing is that is that the cultural effect that is the the sort of uh, way that those events came to have meaning and to matter for people like us thousands of years later had very little of what we would call impact. That is to say, uh, 50, 100, even 100 years after the death and, we believe, resurrection of Jesus, the Roman Empire barely knows it happened. It's not... It's, it's not like an earthquake, even though Matthew says there was an earthquake, but mm-hmm. that wasn't seen. It didn't create a social earthquake. It, instead, it's much more like, you know, this metaphor Jesus uses, he uses several metaphors like this. The mustard seed, the mm-hmm. little bit of yeast in the loaf. And and I I would call these metaphors of influence rather than impact. But uh, Or it's like the olive tree. I am like a green olive mm-hmm. tree in the house of God. Blessed is the one who, uh, you know follows the way of the Lord, he will be like a tree planted by waters. Well, how do trees make a difference? Not through these kind of sudden, dramatic, decisive uh, concentrations of force, but instead through this kind of steady growth that nonetheless is inexorable and very powerful, very powerful in the long run. But Mm. the quest for impact to me gets very bound up. I don't know that it always has to be this way, but it, it just does get bound up with the need to wield mammon, because money mm-hmm. can get things done really fast, and the need to wield technology, because technology gets stuff done very fast. But is God actually in the business of getting stuff done very fast? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. At least when he employs us. I mean, he can yeah. if he chooses. But is that his way for us? I think we need to re-examine this metaphor um, and be very, very careful when we use it and why we use it.
1: I heard someone not long ago talking about how to tell if someone is rooted or unrooted. Uh, mm. sorry, and he says, the question is, do you know the maiden names of your great grandmothers? Oh, A- totally. Totally. My first thought was, well, of course, who doesn't know the maiden names of their great grandmothers? And my wife said, yeah, but you grew up in a Mississippi storytelling exactly. <laughs> family. And most people in America don't. Uh, that kind of a household telling of the the stories. Right. I was really moved in, in your book when you talked about what it means to be a household and, and that mm. that's actually... That's the life we're looking for. Uh, yes. Is to be part of a, a household, and you you define it as uh, when someone will be quieter when that person knows you're asleep, which yeah. I thought was a really powerful way to communicate. In many other uh, many other ways, yes. how how can how can we in this sort of really fragmented, lonely time find? Households
2: Only through a certain amount of risk. Hmm. So I really do think this is the life we're looking for. You know, in some ways, the, the moment we're born, we're just looking, <laughs> I think in a way, we're looking for mom. We're looking for one face. But in the long run, we're really looking to be enfolded in a durable relational community in which we're known, loved, n- loved after we're known, <laughs> you know, instead yeah. of loved because we're not yet known. And, and intergenerational, uh, and I would say not just the biological generations of your great-grandparents, but the, in a sense, the generations of faith. Uh, I think we're meant to be part of not just a, a, a biological family, but the family of God, right? The household of God mm-hmm. is biblical language for the church. And that's where we find, we find ourselves, right? But the problem is— um, to, to find that, especially on this side of the individualization that is the heritage of the Western world, the modern world, and especially the American story, the North American story, uh, requires a kind of risk that, that we really, uh, I think, when people realize what it costs to be known that way. Uh, so it costs a kind of stability because you can't become known, truly known quickly. Uh, and in some ways, unless you do have multi-generational kind of embeddedness, you're you're not actually known in the way human beings have always been known. And and I think we're meant to be known. The Bible speaks of, you know, the book of Genesis is three, really four generations from Genesis 12 to the end of Genesis. Uh, the Bible speaks of prosperity in terms of living to see your children's children and passing mm. on good to your children's children. There's this horizon, this long horizon, but that requires sticking around for that long. Yeah. Well, How many of us do that? How many of us opt out at some point, sometimes for very understandable reasons? And then it requires kind of the risk of opening yourself up in the moment to people. Uh, So my wife and I are living this right now because we've lived in a single family house, raising our two children who are now out of the house. And this year, my wife has a sabbatical from her college teaching job. And we decide to move uh, and spend the year in the city of Boston, which is not where we normally live. And to, uh, But it is a place we used to live. And friends of ours who we've known for 20 years since we moved away uh, had a first floor apartment in their house that they rent. And we said, we should rent from Simon and Manuela. So I am... We're doing this interview, I'm downstairs from Simon and Manuela, who do literally move more quietly upstairs when they know we're asleep because you hear every (laughs) single footstep in this old kind of uh, 1890s wood frame Boston house. And I will tell you, Russell, it is very vulnerable. Once you've gotten used to single family living in in American suburbia, as committed as you may say you are to Christian community and friendship, and I am committed to all these things, uh, partnership, accountability, all that stuff, but to move into a house mm, <laughs> with other yeah. people who notice when we raise our voices uh, mm-hmm. to each other or when we don't actually seem to be talking to each other or you know all the things you notice when you're proximate to people. But the, the only way you're known is to open up your life like that. Hmm. So it, it's this beautiful invitation that also just says, are you willing to risk, are you willing to risk it?
1: I'm imagining a listener uh, to this show who would say, okay, you're right. Uh, the the <laughs> life that I'm looking for and the life that I'm longing for is not being met in, in the way that the uh, technology or mammon would, would tell me uh, that it should be. I do want something different. But she says, what do I do yeah. tomorrow? Uh, w- yeah. What would you advise to, to, to do? because a lot of people would say, okay, yes, Andy's right about all of that, but that's the way the world is now. And right. it's similar to the Luddites um, yeah, uh, yeah. From, from before. And so we have to just we have to just, right. have to just accept sale. it. Yeah. yeah. What would you what would you say to that listener about here are the things you should start doing? or stop doing.
2: I don't quite put it this way in the book, but I think it it is kind of the heart of the matter. I I would say we need to put persons back in the loop (laughs) of our daily lives. That is, um, there are still people around me. Uh, There is someone who arrives to deliver the Amazon package. Now, many Mm -hmm. days I may not see them. I may miss it when they come, but I could, uh, when I see that truck pull down my street, go outside. And just for a moment, I know they're on a schedule. I know they can't stop to talk really, but I could, I could say hello. I could like bridge the gap of the assumption that this is just a functionary of a corporation who's meant to not trouble me. I could trouble myself to reinsert a personal connection where there wouldn't naturally be one. Uh, in a very small way, I try to do this when I have to do this terrible thing we all have to do now, which is wait on hold for a long time and then talk to someone at a call center. And who knows where this person is in the world? And they probably won't tell you their true first name. And, you know, they have a script they have to follow. But I've found that there are ways um, in most of these conversations to interject a note of human recognition. And mm. it's it's kind of funny what happens. And it, kind of the amazing thing is how often we end up blessing each other at the end. Like uh, very often this person at the end of the line is a fellow believer, or at least believes in something like the God I believe in and, and wants good for me. And, and you just make these little connections, um, in the way that I answer email in the way that I mm. work with my colleagues in the way I, if you're working from home, which some people are, how do I actually like lean on any opportunity I have to reestablish a personal connection? Mm. Um, Uh, That may sound inadequate uh, because at some level, I mean, we're in trouble (laughs) and and this is civilizational trouble and any individual person only has so many degrees of freedom. But there's a moment like this in Romans 16 where Paul's dictating all these greetings. He's been dictating the whole letter and, and like most ancient writers, he doesn't write it himself. He uses a scribe. And there's this moment where he stops and he says, uh, well, we don't know for sure that he says this, but the, the voice of the letter changes. And it suddenly says, I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord.
1: So mm-hmm. here's
2: this person who's been anonymous, and uh, at least to the, to the reader of the letter. We don't know who this was. And we have to imagine Paul stops. when At a moment, he doesn't have to stop. And he says, oh, by the way, Tertius, you should absolutely write down your name, tell them hello, mm-hmm. you know. What is that? It's bringing the person back in the loop. It's not treating him just like a function or a transaction. It's saying, here's another brother. And Tertius goes on to say, I'm in the home of Gaius. Erastus is here. The brother Quartus is here. <laughs> you know, yeah. like He's got relationships that he brings into this letter that we think of as the letter of Paul. Um, then you have to, you know, you've got to do that iteratively on more and more risky levels. I, one of my household questions is how many people have a key to your house? Uh, mm. maybe you don't have people who live with you, but is surely there's someone who you ought to invite one step closer and say, "Hey, if you ever need to come over, here's the key. You're not inviting them to kind of violate your privacy, but you are saying, I'm making my life more permeable to someone who's close enough to me that we could actually know what it's like to be each other and have access to each other's lives and homes and family in the in the right way. you know? Mm. I don't mm. i I do think, by the way, you know, as you know uh, from the book, Uh, the Roman Empire was a terribly impersonal place. I mean, the Tertius' name means number three. He didn't even have a proper name. It was a world where unless you were of high status, you were treated as a thing. And of course, if you were a slave, you were literally treated under the law of things rather than the law of persons. And what the first Christians did is without initially any impact on the empire, they started treating one another and their neighbors and their enemies differently as persons. Mm. Because they saw in them the image of God and they saw in them someone for whom Christ had died. And I just think that's exactly the template. It's why I spend, in this book about technology, I spend about a third of it looking at the ancient world. Because I actually think the Roman Empire was a lot like our empire. And I actually think the hope of the church's response of reintroducing the the truly personal in an impersonal world is the same thing. It's the same call today that it was for them 2,000 years ago.
1: And even before that, Pharaoh... Uh, was yes. was very devoted to his name, uh, building storage cities named <laughs> wow. after him, and he's never mentioned my name in Exodus. but <laughs> the Hebrew midwives were? Wow, so this is wow. striking. E- to exactly,
2: to, to see. oh my goodness, exactly.
1: Well, Andy Crouch, uh, before you go, uh, someone <laughs> uh, asked me last week in in one of our our questions that came in at what age should I allow my <laughs> child to have a smartphone? Yes, yes. A- and I'm wondering what your answer to that would be.
2: Yeah, well, my first answer usually is, I think I managed to have a healthy relationship with my smartphone around 48 or 49 years old. So that would be my baseline recommendation. Uh, <laughs> um, I My uh, serious answer is, um, in the U.S., we generally start to entrust 16 or 17-year-olds with uh, two-ton assemblies of metal and glass that can do a lot of harm. So I think that's usually about the right to entrust them with a six-ounce assembly of metal and glass that can do a lot of harm. (laughs) So I, I think, actually, if we think about analogously to driving, here's this technological thing that is part of our world that you do need to learn to handle. And, and we judge that teenagers with, with real limits are, are, uh, can be entrusted to some extent with the operation of a motor, motor vehicle. I think that's about the same time that kids are prepared for the smartphone. And by the same token, we don't just hand kids the keys to the car. Uh, my friends mm-hmm. at Screen Sanity, which is a great organization, have great, essentially, driver's license for your phone kind of mm. uh, process for kids to go through with their parents. And, and they say, what do you do first? You watch someone else drive. Uh, and so are our kids seeing us using our phones in healthy ways? Then you drive with supervision and the parent or the teacher is looking over your shoulder. And then you're given limited access. You know, it's, it's the same exact principle. And I think 16 is probably a, a reasonable time for that. With, that with really the same good. kind of boundaries and securities in a sense that we'd want to put on our own uses of it uh, as adults. Because we know our, our use of it can get very disordered too.
1: And, and that's Screen Sanity, is that right?
2: Screen Sanity. It's this beautiful organization um, that uh, started by two moms uh, in Kansas City who just said, "Let's let's start a totally different kind of conversation in our schools, our sports teams, our churches." And uh, they have lots of great resources on this.
1: Well, the book is called "The Life We're Looking For." Andy Crouch, thanks so much for being with us today.
2: Thank you very much,
0: Russell.
1: Thanks for listening. Links are always in the show notes for resources mentioned in this episode, including a link about how you can have a trial membership to Christianity Today. Be sure to subscribe to the program. Send an episode along to a friend who might benefit from it. And leave us a review when you can. It helps other people to find the show wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Russell Moore, and this is The Russell Moore Show from Christianity Today. More Show is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producers are Eric Petrick, Russell Moore, and Mike Cosbert. Hosted by Russell Moore, produced by Ashley Hales. Associate producers Abby Perry and Azrae Phelps. CT administration provided by Christine Cole. Social media by Kate Lucky. Director of operations for CT Media is Matt Stevens. Production assistance provided by Core Media. Audio engineer is Kevin Duthu. Coordinator is Beth Grabencourt. Video producer is John Rowland. The theme song for the Russell Moore Show is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton.
0: This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.